started, I want to thank you all for praying for my mom. Um, just a heads up, or update, I mean. Uh, she is out of the hospital. She is in uh, rehab in Shillington. Um, if you didn't get the email, uh, my mom had a, uh, a urinary tract infection and a blood infection. Her blood infection was MRSA. Um, and um, they, in order to treat it, it was really bad. They said it was actually really, really bad. Um, they have to use some sort of medication that's relatively new and very expensive. And so we had several choices. And um, it, classic insurance, the cheapest choices would have been uh, not covered by insurance. And so we had to go with the expensive choices. And uh, so she's in the rehab for the next 11 days. And hopefully she'll continue to improve. And that uh, medicine will do its course. Um, that's the only way we could have Medicare pay for the uh, for the medication. Um, so, but uh, she seems to be improving uh, as of yesterday. So we'll see how she is today. Anyway, I just wanted to pass that on to you. Thank you all for your prayers, um, and uh, you pray for opportunities to minister to my mom and encourage her, and uh, and maybe even some opportunities there at the at the uh, retirement or the um, rehab. All right, we are in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at 17 through 22. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity that we can uh, learn about faith and learn about what faith is and see the examples of true faith. I pray you'll help us as we consider the text this morning as we have for the last several weeks that, that we will be challenged by these texts. I pray you'll help us to think rightly about Hebrews chapter 11. For too long, Christianity has looked at Hebrews 11 as some sort of nice, touchy-feely um, chapter about days gone by. I pray you'll help us instead to recognize what Hebrews is for and be challenged and exhorted uh, in light of uh, these verses that we'll look at this morning. Help us to understand. I pray your spirit will work in our hearts to open our eyes to see it and to see us as well ourselves and understand our need for you and understand for your understand our need for your mercy. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11. We've been working our way through up to chapter 11, verse 17 so far. I want to remind you, since we weren't together last week, I want to remind you that Hebrews 11, as I just prayed about, is not a chapter we typically think it is. Uh, typically we look at Hebrews chapter 11 as, as a chapter that is really neat and encouraging and, 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 and gives a glimpse of, of faith in the past. And it's really exciting to see these people of amazing, powerful, dramatic faith. And we miss the point that the story is not about those people. It's not at all about those people. Those people are given to us as examples, not of amazing and extraordinary, unusual um, exceptional faith. That's not what they're here for. They're given to us to give us examples of what faith is. So it ought not to be that we look at it and say, wow, those people had really extraordinary faith. They're there for us to look at and say, that's what faith looks like. And so in light of that, it should cause the reader or the hearer to say, is that me? That's the point. Do I have faith that looks like that? Because if I don't have faith that looks like that, the reality is I don't have 
faith. That doesn't mean that we experience the exact same things that we see in the text. That's not the point. The idea for the writer of Hebrews, and indeed God himself, is that the reader and hearer of Hebrews chapter 11 will, as it were, feel the heartbeat of faith and recognize that that heartbeat of faith we see in these people is the exact same heartbeat we see in ourselves, in our individual circumstances, situations in life. That we will see that, we will feel that in ourselves, we will recognize that in ourselves. Because if we don't, the argument of Hebrews is that at minimum we have dull heart or dull, dull ears and, and hard hearts, cold hearts, which ultimately will say something about if we're really saved or not. I find it interesting how often people who claim to be Christians will say that they have faith, but I hear it in two different categories that make, me, make my head hurt, frankly. Because they'll either say I have faith, but it's not based upon who God said he is, or who Christ said he is, or who the Holy Spirit is revealed as being. It's not based upon what God has said, revealed, about his plan, his commands, his promises. It's faith in something totally different. It's faith in either a caricature of God, that God has created, that people have created in their view of God, but it's not the historic God, it's not the historic Christ. Or it's faith in things God has said nothing about. And I want to just say right off the bat, that's not faith. It just isn't. It's not even close. Let's just give it a little test and see if it really is. Someone who's created a caricature of Christ, say for example, dies and arrives at heaven. I'm just creating a story. Someone dies and arrives at heaven. And as arriving at heaven, he's going to look for someone who's not Jesus because his faith has been in someone else. Does that make sense? His faith is in someone he's created in his own mind, in his own heart, not the historic Jesus, not the real Jesus. Well, you know what that means? Just thinking it through, that means the Jesus he's created better have died on the cross for his sins. Because his faith is there, not here. See, true saving faith is true saving faith on, with regard to the true historic Jesus. Not who we want him to be. Not who we think he is. Not who we hope he is. Because when I generate another Jesus, I listen to that Jesus. I don't listen to the historic Jesus. I listen to that Jesus. And everything goes haywire really quickly. Or to change the scenario, if, it's, if, if my faith is based on things that God hasn't said, God hasn't revealed, God hasn't commanded, God hasn't promised, but I'm banking on it, the same scenario at the end applies. That's not what he said. That's not what he promised. It's not what he commanded. It's not anything. 
And ultimately, at the end of the day, we know this is true because it works everywhere. Tom, can I ask you a quick question? You're an English teacher. You claim to be. <laughs> I, should, I should probably actually go over to Sammy because she's a math teacher. And it's easier um, for me. <laughs> oh, wait. You're not a math teacher? We'll get to that later. You had me really confused for a second. <laughs> we'll go back to Tom. <laughs> I could have gone to you as an English teacher, too. <laughs> okay, now the pressure's on. Tom, are you an English teacher still? <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, English teacher, you write an exam. You give the exam to the teacher, or to the students. The student takes it. He totally rewrites the question. It answers his question. What do you do with that? And? Ultimately, he wouldn't get a good grade, would he? No, he'd fail. Because if he rewrote every question and answered his own question versus whether his answers are right or not, are they, is that relevant? If his answers are right to his questions, is that relevant to you? No, of course not. It's not relevant to you at all. Whatever you're teaching, <laughs> it's not relevant to you either, is it? It's not relevant to you either. I'm trying to make sure I get all the teachers that are here today. I got all the teachers? Good. Okay. No. It's not relevant. Well, you don't, you don't give tests. Coloring tests. What's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other issue. But no teacher would ever say, oh, well, that's nice. I'll give it. Great. We'll, we'll give you an A for the test because you got all the answers right. You'd fail. We all know that. If you're an employer and you tell an employee to do something and they decide, no, I'd rather do, for example, Matt, if your employer said, I need you to fix the network, and you say, you know what, I'd rather go trim the grass. And you go out and get a mower and you mow the grass all day. Is your employer going to say, oh, thanks a whole lot. I'm going to give you a raise. No. Is he going to say, well, that's acceptable too. He didn't give you a raise. That's acceptable too. Thanks. No. Because the network's still down. We all kind of get that, don't we? Right? Abby, if you're at work and you start trimming toenails of a customer, besides the fact that it's disgusting, Finer's not going to be happy. He's not going to give you a raise. You get the point. We all get that, right? But for some reason, when it comes to Christianity, we think we can create our own ideas. We can create our own understanding of Jesus. We can create our own understanding of what he said, what he's commanded, what he's promised, and we can have faith in those things, and somehow we, it's okay. Hebrews 11 is dialing directly into that and saying, you've got cold hearts. You've got hard hearts. You're dull of hearing if that's the case. See, Christianity and postmodernism doesn't work very well together, does it? God has declared about himself 
He's declared a lot about his, pro- his plan. He's declared promises. He's declared commands. Faith is directly tiled, dialed into what has been revealed, and faith demonstrates itself by having appropriate responses to that. Not responses to what I want, exam, for example, but responses to what God has said. There are appropriate faith-evidencing responses to that. And that's what we find in Hebrews chapter 11. And the idea of Hebrews 11 is that the reader and hearer of Hebrews chapter 11 will ask themselves, am I taking the wrong exam? Am I rewriting the questions? The writer of Hebrews is expecting the hearer or reader to say, to ask themselves, am I in the wrong classroom? Do I have the wrong teacher? Do I believe rightly? And the evidence of it is, am I, is, is the effect there. Is the effect there or is it not? So that's where we find ourselves when we get down to Hebrews. And it's been this way for the first 16 verses as well. I want to remind you, he says in verse 11, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that's the, that's the baseline. And let me clarify again what we said when we went through verse 1 originally. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The idea of the statement things hoped for is the things that we're hoping for are the things that are revealed things. Revealed by God. That thing's hoped for like I hope that my business succeeds because God hasn't revealed that, for example. And it implies the idea that I actually hope for the things that God has revealed, that my hope resides in that. It doesn't reside elsewhere. It's, It's certainly not faith in God if my hope's not there. And we're going to see that really clearly today. So let's jump into 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the the promises was in, in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him up, raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's the short verse we're going to look at this morning, just by way of sampling the idea of what Hebrews is trying to communicate. Let's go back to verse Uh, 17 by faith abraham when he was tested offered up isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that god was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back 18 and 19 so we know the story should be pretty familiar to almost everybody here if not everybody god said to abraham he said abraham after he had promised him a son and gave him a son Correct? He promised him a son, 
as an old man, we already saw it in the text, and his wife, beyond childbearing years, or as the scriptures record, as good as dead. And what happened? She bore a son. Correct? And then God said, when the son grew up a bit, said, Abraham, by way of testing Abraham, I want you to do what? I want you to kill your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. Kill him. Now, it's really important that we put ourselves in his shoes. Whether you have a son or not, very important we put ourselves in his shoes because it's really easy to clean it really up because we know the end of the story, right? And the end of the story is really cool and it teaches a really important lesson about Jesus. So it's really exciting. It's an exciting story, but it's really important and the writer of Hebrews needs us to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes because the whole point is to ask ourselves if we have this kind of faith. Does our faith look at all like this? God spoke to Abraham and told him, I want you to kill your son. I need to give a qualifier at this point. And the, quali- the qualifier is kind of easy. God's never going to tell you to kill someone. The special revelation thing that ends up being the scriptures that we're seeing about this right here, that's closed. That's done. So if, just a clue. If God tells you to do something that the scriptures don't tell you, it's not God. Okay, everybody got that? It's not God. He's not telling you that today. I hear a lot of Christians say, well, God told me. God's not doing that today. He's telling you right here. Right here. If you don't believe that, 2 Peter 1 makes it really clear. Be that as it may, before the scriptures were written, God spoke to people occasionally throughout uh, history. Occasionally. Very rare, but occasionally. This is one of those times. God spoke to Abraham, and he said to him, I want you to kill your son. I want you to take Isaac up to the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham proceeded to argue with God and disagree with him and ignore him and excuse him and think he just ate ate bad pizza the night before. Right? Isn't that the story? So he probably just had a bunch of acid indigestion and maybe his hormones were all messed up. Correct? Right? Is he even close? No. What does the Bible say he did? He got up the next morning, didn't he? And it didn't just say he got up the next morning. It says he got up early the next morning. And he loaded up his son. A donkey. And he loaded up sticks. He bound his son. Didn't he? Built an altar. And he put the sticks on there. And his son even questioned him, didn't he? Where's the sacrifice? And in faith, what did Abraham say? God will provide. Why would Abraham say that? Faith. What God had said. He traveled up there. He built the fire. Built the stick. Laid the sticks out. I mean, put his son on the altar. 
And he did what next? What did he do next? He took the knife out of the sheath and he, he raised the knife. Why would he raise the knife? To kill his son. And as he was about ready to thrust that knife right into his son's chest, God spoke and provided a ram. And he took his son off the altar and he took the ram and he sacrificed it. But what does the scripture say here? His faith was based upon what God had revealed, that God would provide a way. And here in the text, even if it meant what? What? That he'd kill his son and what? His son would be raised from the dead. What did he believe about God? He believed that God was powerful. Right? First, didn't he? Did he believe that God was more powerful than life and death? Well, it's clear. He was going to thrust the knife into his son's chest and kill him and then burn him, knowing that if worse came to worst, God could raise him from the dead. Secondly, he believed God's promises. And what was his promise? That God would provide a son. But not just that God, God would provide a son, but what? From his son, what would happen? What? A great nation. And that great nation would do what? It would, it would ultimately bless the whole world. And, by the way, that's very messianic. <laughs> very focused on the Messiah. That's the promise. Faith for Abraham, the, the faith of Abraham caused him to what? Believe that God promised that his son, through his line, would do what? Bless the world. Well, there's no blessing going on at this point, is there? At the point of the story, there's no blessing going on, is there? None. There's no world blessing. There's no great nation yet, is there? They haven't even gotten the land yet. There's nothing. But Abraham had faith in a God that was real and alive that had revealed himself. He had faith in that God's promises. And by the way, the, he had faith in God's commands, didn't he? He was up on top of the mountain with a knife in his hand with his son. He trusted God's commands. Obeyed. That's the picture of faith that he's trying to give. And what, when we hear this, we've got to ask ourselves a huge question. The huge question is, did my faith look at all like that? And I know that's a painful question. It should be. It should be a painful. That's the whole point of it. Because it, the whole book of Hebrews has been building up this. This is who Christ is. He is supreme. He is, he is superior. He's preeminent. And this is who he is. This is an appropriate response to him. This is how it ought to look like. This is what it ought to look like. 
And the writer of Hebrews wants the reader to ask himself, is that me? Not that you're going to kill your son. Not that you're going to sacrifice him and build an altar and find a ram and all that. good. God didn't command that to you. But there's all sorts of other promises and commands, aren't there? There's all sorts of other statements about who God is, right, throughout the scriptures. Does my faith look like that? I find it interesting how often, if I just may use this illustration, how often Christians I find people who claim to be Christians are so terrified of offending anyone when it comes to Christianity. I want to qualify that. When it comes to Christianity, we're so afraid of offending anybody that we never talk to other believers about Christianity. We never talk about to unbelievers about Christianity. We never talk about either side. But we're not afraid of offending about anything else. Isn't that right? We don't find ourselves afraid of offending about anything else. I like the Eagles. I like Dallas. Rawr! We're not afraid of offending about that. We're not afraid of about offending someone about, you know, I like Taco Bell. I like, I like Kentucky Fried Chicken. I hate Taco Bell. I can't believe you like Taco Bell. Taco Bell's gross. We're okay with offending people about that. I like Apple. I like Samsung. Not afraid about offending people about that. Right? I'm Democrat. I'm Republican. Not afraid of offending people about that. Or whatever the case may be. We're not offend, afraid of offending people about anything. Until it comes to Christianity. And we forget that Jesus said, I'm, I'm the rock of offense. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? And yet we find ourselves totally ignoring that and saying we're people of faith. Now, I'm not talking about we here. I'm just talking about Christians in general. It may apply to you. It may not. I'm just talking. It may apply to me. It may not. I've got to wrestle with this, right? That's the whole point of Hebrews 11. I need to wrestle with this. You need to wrestle with this. Are you, am I a person of faith? Abraham was willing to kill his son. Too often, I find believers forget about killing a son. They don't want to kill 15 minutes to pick up a phone and pray with somebody. They don't want to kill their TV show for the week. To minister to somebody. They don't want to stop watching their their their, 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 their football game to exhort a fellow believer. Forget about killing a son. Just forget about it. We don't even want to do that so often. 
And yet we feel very comfortable saying we're people of faith. The writer of Hebrews wants to, 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 to broadcast that dissonance. He wants it to become painfully obvious that that is not faith. Abraham was willing to kill his son with regard, if I may bring it to full fruition, with regard to something that was promised not yet fulfilled. It's important we get that because that's a regular theme in Hebrews. He was willing to kill his son for something that had been promised and not even close to being fulfilled. There was nothing about it fulfilled except there's actually a son there. So a third of it was fulfilled. There's a seed. Land and blessing. Couldn't even see it from where he's at. Couldn't even see it. We today live in a time frame. We call it the already not yet time frame. Because the Redeemer has come. We even celebrate it every year. <laughs> Front and center for a month plus we celebrate it every year. And he lived and he proclaimed and he ministered and he did miracles and he was arrested. He was tried. He was convicted. Everybody left him and he hung on a tree and three days later he rose again and we celebrate both of those two every year, don't we? We celebrate them every year. It's called Good Friday and Easter. It's already not yet because there's one thing yet to happen, right? Glorification. We're like nine-tenths of the way there. He had nothing to plead. It's stunning to see. And too often, in this time frame, we find ourselves in some form of, if I may be blunt, namby-pamby, empty, cheap, almost made-in-China type of scenario of faith. When it's convenient, eh, but when it's not, we'll just throw it away. But it certainly doesn't change lives. It doesn't alter our life. It doesn't alter the very direction of our life. It doesn't alter the very tenor of our life. It doesn't alter the theme of our life. It doesn't alter anything. Except for eat up a little bit of time because we go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and maybe occasionally read the Bible. Maybe occasionally pray. But too often, it's not this. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to ask ourselves, is the faith that I claim to have, is it more in concert with what I see in, this, in these two verses? Or is it more in contrast to what I see in these two verses? Does it, does it mesh like a, like a, a well-designed, well-functioning transmission of a car? Or does it more sound like somebody forgot to put the clutch in? What does my faith sound like? 
goes on with the same theme. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings, future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's all it says about this one. By faith, verse 20, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, period. <coughs> Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac is coming to the end of his life. And because of what God had revealed, which, if I may just say it, again, has not been revealed, has not been experienced, has not been accomplished, is purely and simply future. Purely and future. Purely future. What does Isaac do? He believes God. It's faith. So it says, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. He longed for, more than anything else, what? The fulfillment of God's promises based upon the God who gave them, who is powerful enough to accomplish them, who is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, even though he had not yet fulfilled it. What does Isaac do? His whole focus on his deathbed to talk about God and to bless them according to what God had promised. You see, for Jacob, he gives the promise, he passes on the promise of what? The promise of land, seed, and blessing that he received from Abraham, who received them from God. And so what, is, what does Isaac do? He passes it on to Jacob. He passes on the blessing. It's not simple words. It's based upon his faith. These are, it's, not, it's not just cheap words. It's based on faith. If you read the text, it's really interesting, not this text, but in Genesis. After he blesses Jacob, Esau begins to weep. He just absolutely breaks down and begins to weep bitterly because he didn't receive a blessing. And so Isaac turns to Esau and blesses him. It is not the blessing he wanted. Because he saw what he knows what Jacob got. But he turns to Esau and he passes on the blessing that God said Esau would receive. And it's not amazing it's not an amazing thing. <laughs> Ultimately, he does get land, but, he end, but the blessing is more focused on his being under the foot, as it were, of Jacob. It's not a pretty, pretty thing. And you say, how's that a blessing? Because Esau should have died. So he's still alive as a blessing. And that's because of God's mercy. So it is a blessing. But what Isaac does is he embraces the truth by faith of, of who God is and what God has revealed, and he passes it on, therefore, onto, onto his children. Unrealized. Unrealized. Now, you could say, well, that's so, so I mean, it's, words are cheap again. <laughs> but 
there's too much of a history of the Jewish people not believing God and just being what? Bitter and aggravated and angry at God and ignoring God. Isn't that the history? Isn't that absolutely the history? Because it hadn't been, it hadn't been achieved yet. They just gave up. If you don't believe it, just read Malachi. The whole nation did, including the priests. But by faith, Isaac believed and embraced it and passed it on as the most important thing he could give Jacob and Esau. His last words, important stuff, isn't it? It's important stuff. He passed on the most important thing he could pass on, and that is the promise that had yet been unrealized. Which brings us to the next verse. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, I'm sorry, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, sorry. By faith, Jacob, when dying, I knew that sounded, didn't sound right. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. What's happening here? Simply, it's just the same thing. Same exact thing. Jacob is taking the blessing and doing what with it? Passing it on. Why is he passing it on? Hasn't happened yet. Still hasn't happened. But, but Jacob's faith is driving him. Jacob's faith is driving him to do what? To say the most important thing I can give you is what God has given to me. Unrealized, yes, but pass it on because it belongs to you because God who is faithful and God who is powerful, God who has promised, God who has spoken, God who has re revealed himself, here he is. You know one of my biggest sadnesses, if I may be blunt? In my over 30 years of full-time ministry, you know one of my biggest sadnesses I've, I've experienced is? Fathers who don't minister to their children. One of the biggest sadnesses I've ever ex experienced is when I talk to fathers who are concerned about their children and I try my hardest to get them to minister to their children and they don't. And they beg me to minister to their children. And I look at them and I say, what are you talking about? What in the world are you talking about? Fathers, minister to your children. What in the world? Where's your faith in the God who has spoken? Where's your faith in the God who has revealed himself? Where's your faith in the God who has promised? What in the world's going on? And yet these same people would freely say that they're a person of faith. Like, how does that fit in here? Please help me. Somebody, please, I'm, I'm literally asking, how does that fit in here? Can anybody give me an answer? Does it? i got to be honest, it sounds to me like that little kids thing that we, many of us played with as kids where you had the different shapes and then it had the, 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 the top on it with all the different holes and you had to get it in the right hole. The top is faith. 
And these fathers are trying to ram it through and it doesn't fit. Faith is what it is. And we see these people and what are they doing? More than anything else, they're doing what? They're not perfect people. Read their story. They're flawed people. Some of them grotesquely flawed people. What are they doing? They're passing on the truth. They're passing on the promises. They're passing on who God is because they're people of genuine faith. That's what it is. That's unrealized. If I may just say this, it's really cheap. This is, I just want to tell you how cheap it really is. It's incredibly cheap that the only faith we ever talk about is something that's realized. You know, for example, I pray, God answers. Woohoo! That's great. Isn't that exciting when that happens? Isn't it? Amen. Now, it begs the question, was it something that God revealed, that God promised, right? Because it can't be faith if it's not about something that God hasn't said anything about. But even if it is, that's exciting when that happens. But real faith is what? What does it say? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Answers, conclusions, are things seen, aren't they? By nature, they're things seen. They're not things hoped for. I don't hope to go to Disney World after I've been there. That's kind of weird. Or more aptly said, I don't hope to go to Disney World when I'm standing in Tomorrowland. That's kind of weird. There's something really weird about that. If you talk to somebody in Tomorrowland and said, so what's your greatest hope? I hope someday I can go to Disney World. And something's wrong with you. You're in Disney World. Why would you hope someday you could go there? Faith is most clearly revealed. Most resoundingly revealed as evidenced by things not seen. Not things seen. By, as evidenced by things hoped for, not realized. Really importantly, get that. Because we see in the text here, what are they doing? They're not talking about things realized. They're talking about things hoped for. They're not talking about things seen. There's no Israel at this point. There's no amazing blessing going on at this point that's affecting the whole world. There's none of that. It's faith. Verse 22 continues the theme. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. 
wait a second. Stop. There's no, there's no exodus going on. There's none of that. But God promised it. Didn't he? And Joseph does what? Based upon the promises of God, he gives instructions to his descendants to do what? To do something with his bones. Why? Because God said that's what's supposed to happen. And unrealized, unseen, Joseph passes on the I mean, these little stories we get here are stunning, friends. They are absolutely, earth-shakingly stunning. Because it challenges you and I to ask ourselves, are we people of faith? Or are we, to go into the context of Hebrews, are we people who are according to Hebrews chapter 6, sampling of the good things to come. We're merely sampling. It's like we're at Sam's Club walking through and getting a meal with all the samples. But we never buy anything. We don't buy into it. We're just sampling. We're trying to get the cool things, but we're not really interested in what it all is all about. And yet we call it Christianity. And we say we're people of faith. But we're not. If we're like Hebrews 6, merely sampling. See, that's the, if I'm using the term, that's the juxtaposition here. This is one, this is the other. Hebrews 6 is one, Hebrews 11 is something else. Hebrews, the warnings of Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 and 6 and 8 and the end of 10, they're one, and Hebrews 11 is something different. And ultimately, if it's not Hebrews 11, and you and me, ultimately what we are is the other ones that ultimately culminate at the end of 10 with what? Destruction. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. It ultimately culminates in destruction. So I hope you get the point that this is something blood earnest. It ought to be blood earnest for you and me to ask ourselves this really important question, who am I? Am I 11, or am I all these other passages in chapter 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10? And 12. Who am I? Now, I've got to be honest with you. Some people will come to me and say, and I know this happens. It happens quite regularly. Well, that's so negative, Steve. Well, yeah, of course it is. It's like saying it's really negative when somebody pounds my door down at 3 o'clock in the morning and screams at me that my house is burning down. Well, why you got such a negative message? It's weird. Because within the negative message is the, is the encouraging, grace-filled, mercy-filled message saying, come back. Return. Which is the call throughout the Holy Old Testament. 
Come back and return and enjoy me, Jesus says. Come back and find me to be the supreme one who I talked about. Come back and find me to be the only one that truly satisfies. Come back and, and discover that I'm much better than you could ever imagine anything. Yes, it's painful. That process is very painful because it, it acknowledges that we have to do what? Say all the rest is a bunch of lies. It all was. A bunch of, well, this will satisfy, that'll satisfy, that'll satisfy, this would be wonderful, this would be amazing, if only this, if only that, if all lies. All of it. Let ki goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. I've quoted that song so many times. His body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's what he's talking about. It's a painful message. But at the end of the pain is this amazing blessing. You know, Abraham... We just talked about Abraham. In order for Abraham to believe in Genesis 12 and go to the land that God said he'd, he'd show him, he had to turn his back on everything and everyone. Don't think for a second that wasn't painful. Don't think for a second that wasn't agonizing for him. But the result was a relationship with his Redeemer. Powerful relationship, life-altering, life-changing in every way. The question before us, is that us? Is that me? Is that you? Now, I, I freely acknowledge and grant the idea that we are Christ, true Christians are growing and changing people. I freely acknowledge that. I do. But growing and changing in the dealing with our sin is different from loving and trusting. I hope we realize that. Right? Let me say it again. Growing and changing in dealing with our sin is very different from loving and trusting, isn't it? Loving and trusting is the, is the basic core elements of faith or evidences of faith. It's from there that we grow and change and start dealing with the stuff of our lives. I find too often we're trying to grow and change without loving and trusting, without being people of faith. And what a futile exercise that is. I'm sure the blind guy that Jesus healed when he spoke to the Pharisees had a boatload of sin issues in his life. I'm sure he was chock full of things he needed to grow and change through. But he went from being a pauper who was merely a beggar with a tin cup to being someone who was absolutely enthralled with Jesus. I guarantee you that Saul, who later became Paul, was chock full of things he needed to grow and change. He did spend three and a half years out in 
out in the wilderness with Jesus. I'm sure a lot of that was involved not just in seminary, you know, with Jesus as, as an instructor, teaching him this is theology 101, 102, 202, and finally getting up to 800 seminary level. I'm sure some of that happened. I bet a bunch of it was also other things, like as in dealing with his growing and changing issues. But when Saul came in contact with Jesus, his love, his affection, his longing, his desires, his hopes, his dreams changed. And isn't that what you see? Isn't that what you see in the scriptures? That's what you see. And that's when the war starts of growing and changing. It is interesting to look in the scriptures and see all the discussions of affections and love and, and on and on and on, thankfulness and all the rest of that that flows out of the scriptures. It's stunning to see it all, isn't it? It's everywhere. Because faith informs us based upon the truth of Scripture. So the question before us is, are we people of faith? The question before us is, <coughs> do we have saving faith, or do we not? And secondarily, have we wandered astray temporarily? I use the word temporarily, pur purposefully very specifically, because we can't say I've wandered away when the last 10 years I'm just throwing a number out. I've been cold to the Lord. That's, that's not biblically accurate at all. The Holy Spirit is much more powerful than that. He transforms lives. That's what he does. Maybe we're temporarily cold hard, dull. Okay. God calls us back to the cross. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I get that. I mean, purely from a physical standpoint, there are times when I get distracted from my wife. And I have to come back and ask for forgiveness and be restored and pursue my wife again. I get that. Makes sense to me. But it's temporary. Temporary. And I ache when it's there. I hurt when it's there. Why do I hurt? Why do I ache when it's there? Because I have a love for my wife. And I'm cold when I remain cold towards God. It says something. I don't love Jesus. I don't love God. And I don't have that ache, that longing, that conviction. When, when, I, when I find that that's absent, this is not rocket science, friends. It just isn't. The call is the same either side. Whether it's temporary or you find that's just my MO. The call is the same. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe. That's the point. Repent and believe. He's got some amazing promises with regard to that. 
doesn't he? I mean, stunning promises, doesn't he? You may not realize them right now. Sound familiar? Doesn't it? Sound familiar? You may not realize it right now, but that's what faith is. Let's come to Jesus, shall we? Let's come to Jesus and be, be, be gloriously loved. Amazingly loved. Stunningly, amazingly loved. Or maybe it's the first time. Maybe you've never, never been saved. Come and be saved gloriously. Be transformed. By the power of Christ. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us firstly to, in hearing this text, help us firstly to see ourselves. as we are. And then by your spirit, I ask you to work in our lives that we will respond to what we see. But more importantly, that we will respond to what you've revealed in your word about yourself, about your promises. I pray that by your spirit, our hopes will be based upon (coughs) what you said we ought to hope for. Pray that by your your Spirit's work in our lives, by faith, that we will be people who will be absolutely convinced of the things that we don't see. And then, Lord, I pray that that will, as it has to be by necessity, will be evidenced in the way our lives are lived. And as a result, you will be praised and glorified and honored and held up high. And that we will be instruments used by you. In your name I pray. Amen.